Listening to the Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. Thanks to Concordia University Wisconsin for supporting the Coffee Hour. Find out more about Concordia University Wisconsin at cuw.edu. Live uncommon. We have another commemoration. December is full of commemorations. It have you is. noticed that? I like it. We have another commemoration today, and we are going to dig in because there are some interesting customs associated with this one. Yes. So we're going to head to Colorado. Yeah, that's okay. a good, good, good place, place to go. To go. <laughs> today, the church commemorates Lucia Martyr. Joining us today, the Reverend Wesley Odom, associate pastor and headmaster of Our Savior Lutheran Church and School in Pagosa Springs, Colorado. Pastor Odom, welcome back to the Coffee Hour. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. So the church commemorates Lucia Martyr. This is one I don't know much about, had to do some reading in order to learn more about. And then I felt a little embarrassed that I didn't know much about <laughs> Lucia Martyr, but I'm glad that we're talking today so that we can learn more. So who is Lucia Martyr? Well, very simply, Lucia is a very early fourth century young woman who is martyred for her Christian faith. She's from the island of Sicily, from Syracuse. It seems that she is born into a wealthy family, possibly a noble family there of Sicily. She grows up, according to some traditions, without her father, which is why he doesn't appear really in any of the, the traditions that we have. She's raised by her mother then, Eutychia, who brings her up in the Christian faith. And... Then the story goes a couple of different ways, depending on which source you want to take a look at. At some point in her youth, she makes a vow of virginity unbeknownst to her mother, and she dedicates her life to Christ and to the service of the poor and the needy. There's a kind of a core story, the heart of a story then after this that gives us a bit more information on how it is that she comes to make this vow, the circumstances surrounding it, and the circumstances surrounding her martyrdom. In my mind, however, there are in some ways kind of two Lucias. There is the Lucia that goes back to this ancient story that we see portrayed in images wearing a blue and red robe. Perhaps she has a, a palm branch that she's holding in one hand, symbolizing her victory in her martyrdom, her victory in Christ. Perhaps she is also holding a sword or a dagger, noting how it is that she finally succumbs, perhaps succumbs to death in this life. And then there is a whole other Lucia that I imagine many listeners are probably more familiar with, and that is the Lucia, who is a very young maiden with flowing golden locks, wearing a, a beautiful, pure white garment, a red sash around her waist, an evergreen wreath around her head with lit candles in the wreath. There's an interesting question to ask, who is Lucia and how do we have these in my mind, kind of two, two images of Lucia. So that, that's kind of the, the basics of it. And then we can certainly get into the story surrounding her martyrdom itself. 
Do we know why the story kind of takes a bunch of different turns or is that just how history works with some of these people? Probably a little bit of both. She is an early martyr and is very well known, very a very popular martyr in the life of the Christian the Christian church. She's included, for example, in St. Gregory the Great's reworkings of the liturgy of the church. And this is quite early in the life of the church. And as, as that spreads out into the various reaches of the Christian faith, so does her story. And as it makes its way from kind of the heart and center of the church in that day, down you know, in, in Rome, up to the Nordic lands, where the Roman Catholic Church, as we understand it, the Roman Catholic Church today is, her story comes with all of that. And throughout the centuries in that dark and often very dreary place during this time of the year, December 13th and the older calendars is the shortest day of the year, the longest night of the year, matching to the commemoration of her martyrdom. It seems that those Christians up there modify, certainly not nefariously, but just as you say, as history goes, they modify a bit of her image. They focus, it seems, on an aspect of, of who she is, namely her name, Lucia, which comes from the Latin lux for light. And it is a, a time where people are pretty desperate for light. It is, I was thinking just last night of, the first time I visited my wife's family in Finland, it was right around this time of the year, and it's dark a lot. It is very disorienting, in fact, just physically and mentally disorienting to be in darkness so long. So I can understand the appeal of this lovely young maiden who comes into the darkness bearing light. And I, I would say this is one of the main reasons why she is such a beloved saint uh, and martyr up in those Nordic countries, in particular Sweden and the kind of central coastal region of Finland, where my wife's family is from. That's a Swedish-speaking part of Finland. And I'm looking forward to learning more about how this has become a part of your family. But I have some more history Please. questions uh -huh. first before we get into what this uh, what this looks like today. Uh -huh. what, you mentioned that this was in the early church. This was happening in, in the time of the early church. So what was going on in the, the Roman Empire at this time, at the time of Lucia? Well, everything's pretty much smooth sailing in the empire. No, not really. As, <laughs> as, as it usually is in the empire, it is tumultuous. You can simply look at the length of reigns of the emperors, really going all the way back to the beginning of the empire. They are often quite short. They, uh, the emperors often have competitors, sometimes very ferocious competitors. And the emperor during the life of Lucia is Diocletian. Diocletian's name is likely familiar to many of the listeners, he is the one whose name is lent to the Diocletian persecution. This is the most widespread. It is the most severe of the Christian persecutions during the time of the Roman Empire. Diocletian is a soldier emperor. He is dedicated to the pagan cultists of the empire. 
And he is the emperor during the time that the Christian faith is becoming more widespread. It's becoming more influential. It's becoming much more popular as well. And the, the Christians, the Christian faith, as we see even back in the epistles of the apostles, it is a belief that makes Christians suspicious in the eyes of their fellow citizens because participation in the religion of Rome was just what a good Roman did. And Christians would not, they could not participate in many of the aspects of common Roman life. So the thought was, are you a, a good Roman? So Ecclesian then, with all of this being considered, begins a very severe persecution of the Christians. It's focused on not only, but primarily the leadership of the church, the bishops and the priests of the faith. They are forced to hand over the treasures of the church during this great persecution. And that's not primarily things like golden candlesticks or other objects made of precious metals, but in particularly the church's books, the Holy Scriptures, the liturgical books, things such as these. It is really an attempt to cut off the life source of the faith by taking these things away from the Christians. Though it is focused on leadership of the church, it absolutely sweeps up uh, countless laity from all walks of life, like Lucia, who refused to obey orders from their governing officials that would cause them to disobey God. It's a really interesting time in the history of the Roman Empire. And because of that, it's an interesting time for Christians in the empire. You can think about all of the horrors of the Diocletian persecution that end roughly around the time of the martyrdom of Lucia, around 304, that date, 304, and consider that end of the, the spectrum and the reign of Constantine beginning about a year or so later after Lucia's martyrdom. The empire is in such turmoil, changing so radically, changing so quickly that if Lucia had lived just 20 years longer, she might have heard news of the convening of the Council of Nicaea in 325. That's how, how tumultuous it was to be a Christian in the empire in these days. So then what led to her martyrdom? I mean, some things seem kind of obvious now with, <laughs> with, with that kind of historical background and the things that were happening at that time. But what specifically led to her martyrdom? Yeah, the story of Lucia's martyrdom, as I mentioned a bit earlier, has a kind of a heart of very common attributes, regardless of what tradition you're looking at. Some of it's ordered differently. Some actors in the story do things that other actors in the story do in different traditions. But just generally speaking, at some point in Lucia's young life, Eutychia, her mother, becomes ill and is ill for years. And Lucia encourages her to take a pilgrimage to a relatively close Sicilian town, Catania, where Agatha another young Christian woman who had dedicated her life to virginity and to the care of those in need was martyred. And Eutychia agrees. So they go to Catania and they likely go to Agatha's tomb and they 
say prayers for the healing of Eutychia. Maybe she touches an image of Agatha. It's a little unclear there, but she's healed. Their prayers are answered, and it is really a miraculous healing. And it so impresses Lucia that she persuades her mother to give away her dowry, her entire dowry, to give it away to the care of the poor and the needy. And Eutychia agrees. And there's, there's one branch of the story that holds that it is, in fact, Eutychia's miraculous healing connected with Agatha that so inspires Lucia that it's at this point that she privately dedicates her life to that of virginity, dedicates it to Christ and the care of the poor and the needy. The problem for Lucia is in the giving away of the dowry that she's not the only one connected to the dowry. She had, in fact, at this time been promised to a young man who was not too pleased when he found out that the dowry had been just given away in his mind, just given away to the poor. And if we think of Sia's family as a wealthy family, possibly a noble family, this would have been no small amount of money. This would have been a real treasure that Lucia and Eutychia had decided to give away. The young man, however, in his fury, goes to the governor of this area. This is Pascasius. And he betrays her, as is sadly so often the case during this time, betrays her to the governor as a Christian. Again, at this point of the story, there are different branches in the tradition. I kind of go with fury of the governing official here in order to humiliate Lucia, ordering her to serve as a prostitute in a brothel, to absolutely humiliate her and also to to humiliate those Christians who may have similar ideas as Lucia and Eutychia. So the, the story goes in the various traditions that Lucia would not go, would not heed the order given to her to serve in this way, and that nothing could physically move her. No matter how many men came to try to budge her from the spot she was standing in, she could not be moved an inch. There's even one story that holds that a team of oxen are attached to Lucia to try to drag her away. And because of this, you have in some of the images of Lucia, a picture of an oxen, perhaps grazing in the background to remind us of this, this part of the story. But nevertheless, she cannot be moved and they just give up trying to move her. And they say, let's instead, let's burn her alive on the spot. So they begin to pile the wood up around her, but by a great miracle, the wood itself will not even light. You got to figure out something to do. We need to kill this young girl. So someone draws a sword or draws a dagger and runs her through. Some stories say that not even this is able to end her life. And that blazing hot tongs are brought out to peel the flesh from her body, but she will not be moved. She will not, even in the midst of all of this, cease professing the Christian faith for all who could hear her. The only thing that allows her to end her life in this world is 
according to some stories, that a pastor comes and brings the gospel to her, comforts her in her time of need, and gives her the holy sacrament. And when she receives this, then, as it were, she gives up her spirit. There are other branches of the story that have, at some point in all of this, her eyes being gouged out. Other stories say that earlier she gouges her own eyes out so as to make herself less appealing to any future suitors. So you will often see the very striking image in portrayals of Lucia of her holding a small plate or maybe a shell with her eyeballs there in the shell or on the plate to remind us of this aspect of the story of, of her martyrdom. We are learning about the martyr Lucia, and as the church commemorates Lucia today on December 13th, we have more to learn and some learn about some customs today associated with this commemoration as well. Our guest is the Reverend Wesley Odom, Associate Pastor and Headmaster for Our Savior Lutheran Church and School in Pagosa Springs, Colorado. We'll continue the conversation in just a moment. You're listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. At Concordia University, Wisconsin, we believe you were created for a reason, to use your God-given gifts to help others, to live a life of self-sacrifice in a me-first world, to live a life that's uncommon. Whether you're taking one of 50-plus online programs or learning with us in person on the shores of Lake Michigan, you'll be equipped to make an uncommon impact. Learn more at cuw.edu. Concordia University, Wisconsin. Live uncommon. Welcome back to the Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. We are learning about the martyr Lucia today. Our guest is the Reverend Wesley Odom, Associate Pastor and Headmaster for Our Savior Lutheran Church and School in Pagosa Springs, Colorado. Pastor, you've shared with us uh, some history and the, the varying stories associated with the martyr Lucia today. Any other history before we get into some of the traditions associated with this commemoration? No, not really. As I said, there there is kind of the the heart of the story that's relatively consistent in, in the various traditions, and it shouldn't bother us too much that the details vary, vary here and there. So you mentioned earlier that you went to Finland to meet your wife's family around this time of year and noticed how dark it was and that and I think you shared with me before we chatted today about some of the traditions that have been a part of your wife's family and now your family as well what are the traditions that are associated with the commemoration of I think some of these traditions that we do in our family are kind of interestingly to me becoming even more widespread I see this time of the year pictures on Facebook of people dressing their daughters up like Lucia and doing very similar things that we do in our family. So it's it's a heartening, a heartening thing to see these traditions being spread. And what we do in our family is a pretty common, that part of Finland where my wife is from, the Swedish-speaking part of Finland, and also in in Sweden as well. And we we dress our kids up and we really embarrass them. We have a we have an open house. We've had one every year since I've been a pastor and we, we mark our open house around the commemoration of Lucia. We dress our daughter, Edith, up 
as if she were Lucia, which is a very uh, common practice in Sweden and the Swedish speaking parts of Finland and really throughout the larger cities in Sweden and Finland as well. We get the crown, uh, the evergreen crown with the candles in it and put it on her head and she parades through the house singing some of the traditional songs that are associated with Lucia while our three younger boys act like monkeys behind her, but they're dressed up like the star boys, which are part of the custom there as well. And you can see in, in these little processions of Lucia with the candles on her head, the star boys coming behind her, that the focus for these, these little acts in our family. And if we were back in Finland or Sweden, these acts, which would be even carried out in virtually all local churches for sure. They're, they're massive community events. It's a big deal for a young girl to be chosen to be Lucia for the commemoration of Lucia. Christians gather and sing carols and Advent hymns and Christmas hymns all while Lucia is there in the front of the church. Or if you're in your home while Lucia is standing perhaps in front of your Christmas tree, singing songs of Christ and particularly songs about light coming into the darkness. That's really the focus from my perspective in these Nordic Lucia practices is that a light is coming into the darkness. So lots of candles in our house and the house of many houses of many Nordic families. There are special foods that are baked during this time of year. I imagine that some of your listeners will have heard of the Lucia cakes, as we call them in our family, which I think maybe this is more of a weird dialectic term <laughs> that is Lucia Lucibullar, that is little Lucy buns that are kind of figure eight shaped with little raisins, two raisins on them. And I, I've always imagined that those are to be representative of Lucia's eyes that you see in many depictions of Lucia. And, uh, I asked my wife about that just a couple of nights ago. And she said, I think that that's why they're shaped the way they are, but you see, they're so ingrained in the culture that maybe some of the meaning of some of this has become a bit fuzzy, but that's the custom in our family. We, we sing many carols and very particular hymns about Lucia. It's dark and cold this time of the year outside, but here comes Lucia bearing light for us all, which is a pretty easy connection to draw between Lucia bringing light and Christ himself being the light of the world, the light no darkness can possibly overcome. We have just about a minute left. I really want to know though, do we know how the tradition of the candle wreaths and, and those things made it into St. Lucia? That is a an uncommon strand in, in the stories. And that is that Lucia would bring food to Christians in the catacombs where it was very dark. They were hiding for fear of their lives and she would care for them and bring food to them. And the way that she would light her path was some sort of crown with lights, candles attached to it so that she could find her way to them. And, and that makes its way. I don't really see that very often in Southern European depictions of Lucia, but every time virtually in the Northern European depictions of her. And there's this really interesting story from Southwest uh, Sweden, which is very popular. 
that you know in the late 18th century, during a time of great famine, there appears on the Great Lake uh, in the middle of winter a boat miraculously with a young maiden at its helm. And as the boat comes to shore, they see that she is glowing with a miraculous light. The boat is laden with food and it's enough food to care for all of the people in the village. And when the food is unloaded, the boat disappears or Lucia, who it is, Lucia with the crown of evergreen, with the candles on her head, it is her, it is revealed to be very one who is coming to care for their needs. And that story for my money is what begins to spread this particular image of her with the evergreen wreath and the candles about her head in those Nordic countries. Pastor Odom, we are all out of time, but you've done a great job of sharing with us the great history as well as the traditions and all that pointing to Christ. Thank you so much for being our guest and helping us learn more about the martyr Lucia. Thank you. God be with you. Pastor Odom is Associate Pastor and Headmaster for Our Savior Lutheran Church and School in Pagosa Springs, Colorado. You've been listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. The Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah is a production of KFUO. To support The Coffee Hour and KFUO Radio, visit KFUO.org. You can also text KFUO to 41444 or send an email to gifts at KFUO.org. And you can call us at 800-844-0524. KFUO. Christ for you anytime, anywhere. Anywhere.